0: welcome to the Overtime Leader podcast. I am your host Jillian Davis and today I'm going to be talking to Rebecca Zucker who's the partner and founder at Next Step Partners. Uh, Rebecca, I always like to start with the guests doing their own intro because I think you'll be able to bring that more to life than I'll be able to. So why don't you give the audience a quick idea of where you've come from and what you're focusing on now.
1: Sure. I am uh, an executive coach and a partner, as you mentioned, at Next Step Partners, and we are a leadership development firm and have been doing this work for the last 17 plus years. Before that, I had a business and finance background, got my MBA from Stanford and worked in investment banking at Goldman Sachs and for Disney Consumer Products in Paris, uh, doing strategic planning for Europe, Middle East, and Africa. And in the work that we do with business leaders and nonprofit leaders, I should say, my colleagues and I all have prior business and leadership experience, as well as degrees in relevant fields and coaching, training, and certification. And a big part of what we bring to our clients is we come to them as peers. We know their world. So uh, they very much appreciate that.
0: I bet. I think it's, you know, important not just to be theoretical in support, mm-hmm. but also have been there and done that. Yes, absolutely. Tell me about how you've seen the work shift in the past 17 years, if it has shifted. Sure.
1: It, it It definitely has. Uh, well, when we started, it was right after 9-11. And so there were actually no leadership development budgets. And the economy was in terrible shape. So we were founded uh, working primarily in the career transition space, helping business leaders, many of whom had never been out of work before, um, helping them find their next opportunity. And uh, they were either unemployed or very unhappy in what they were doing. And not only did they never need to look for a job before, but they were feeling very isolated. And we created a program called Career Action Groups that really brought people together, created community, and gave them the skill building that they were needing to help them find their next opportunity. And um, we ran this program for several years in in several cities across the U.S. And um, it's great. To this day, 17 years later, we still... Hear from people, get referrals from them, and it's really wonderful to see how their careers have evolved. Um, but clearly, the economy came back um, after uh, you know some period of downturn, and we started doing uh, you know more corporate leadership development work, executive coaching, group leadership programs, and what we've seen, I would say, in the last. Seven years or so is more of a focus on what we call vertical development versus horizontal development. And horizontal development is the traditional focus on skills and competencies and is still very important. It's what we would refer to as um, sort of technical change, requiring new information, frameworks, etc. And the vertical development is more focused on what is called adaptive development, and that is about um, transforming how we think, or expanding how we think, and really helping us develop as individuals. And so there's a whole study of adult development, um, just like there is of childhood development. And they used to think that we stopped developing at the age of 20. They now know that that is not true. And, um, so that I would say is one of the biggest innovations in leadership development is that focus on adaptive or vertical development.
0: And in adult development, what's kind of the key differences in terms of how we learn now at this stage?
1: Well, how we learn one is a very personal thing. We all have our preferences. Some people are very visual learners. Some people are very kinetic learners, But I think that there are many more modalities of learning now than there used to be, obviously, with the um, advent of technology. And having learning be one, um, there's the term snackable, sort of very bite sized, Mm -hmm. and helping people integrate it that way. But having learning, so much of learning is on the job and not just, say, in a classroom or in a training session. But really, it's like I think about it when I learned French, when I lived in Paris, I had to do everything. I had to read. I had to write. I had to listen. I had to speak. And so it's all of those things coming together that really helps solidify that skill set. And it's the same thing that when we are learning any other um, competency like strategic thinking or um, developing others, we need to do many different things to make that happen.
0: So I wanna I wanna spend a significant portion of this episode talking about strategic thinking. But before we do on this uh, learning chapter, what I'm seeing come up as one of the biggest blockers for learning in executive leadership, and actually down the the chain to like emerging managers, is time, and not I see. You know, executive leaders focusing their energy on developing—if that, like in, in a perfect world—they're develop the energy they spend is getting their subordinates to focus on their learning and development, but they often don't prioritize their own time to focus on their development and to learn anything, especially behavioral learning, right? Like mm-hmm. opening our minds and looking at something through a different lens, and having that kind of headspace to be reflective, to to realize that we are learning on the job, um, it's not, it, it often doesn't happen. And, and, you know, I've had actually had one guest who would schedule time in his diary for that specifically, but it's one of the very few people I've worked with who give themselves that time to, to make sure that they are, you know, doing the reflection, adapting changing. Um, how do you, how do you recommend for people to, to prioritize that over doing the job?
1: That's a great question. And reflection is such a big part of learning. Uh, The two things that I say are most important for learning and growth are vulnerability. First, to be able to say, I'm not as good at this area as I would like to be. And the other is to take the time to step back and reflect on um, both what's getting in my way or how am I getting in my way? What am I finding difficult and what is so difficult about that for me? Mm -hmm. And how am I making progress there? Uh, It's one thing I commend your client for blocking out time on their calendar. I am curious if they're able to keep it because that's what I find the real challenges for people. If they do block it out, they just schedule right over it. And that's where the adaptive part comes into play because oftentimes we are operating, with limiting beliefs or, or assumptions about what will happen if we actually safeguard or protect that time instead of getting the work done in that moment and i think there's such a focus on getting stuff done that that tends to override any reflection time etc so part of the the learning process is shifting how we think and that's the adult development piece
0: mm-hmm. Oh, it's, it's so important. And unfortunately, I don't think managers or leaders are rewarded for the time that they spend developing themselves. And it's much more a reward system based on delivery of that tangible work results. Therefore, right. we see what we see probably on a
1: Right. And it is one of these things, you have to go slow to go fast. And It's not uncommon to hear from a senior leader from time to time to, uh, you know, they'll want to do an offsite, but, oh, we only want to take three hours and we want to accomplish these 30 things. (laughs) And you actually
0: need a few days to start that
1: process.
0: (laughs) Yes. And a plan on how you'll implement, you know, the changes. It's not, it doesn't stop at the end of the workshop. Exactly. That's when it starts. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. The other thing that I'm seeing in this environment is like a a reactiveness towards jumping to solutions or processes without actually spending that time to realize that it's the behaviors that make all the difference. Are you seeing that as well?
1: Yes. Well, it's interesting. It reminds me of a quote from Albert Einstein, which I'm paraphrasing here. He said, if I had an hour to save the world, I would spend 55 minutes defining the problem and five minutes... Coming up with a solution. Mm, mm,
0: so, I like that. I'll be using that one.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's really very telling because if you're solving the wrong problem, you're not going to yeah. get anywhere. So it's making sure you're taking the time to really focus on the right things, and that's where I also see a lot of people get the way, get in their own way, I should say. They are trying to get so much stuff done that they are very directive. It, with their teams and their people, and so they're not necessarily spending the time to coach them to build that leadership capacity to set themselves up for success. And that is again one of the you have to go slow to go fast, although I don't think coaching, although there's the perception that it takes more time, it doesn't really take more time. It's just a different approach, using more of an inquiry based approach rather than a directive approach.
0: It's funny to say that I have a a framework for change management that we've coined minimum viable change. And the point is starting small instead of traditionally, you'd have executives sit in a closed room, thinking of all the potential problems solving for them, and then rolling out this kind of top down, it's this. And then by the time it gets all the way down, they're already on change number two, because they realized they hadn't thought of everything. So actually scaling it back, starting a bit slower, you know doing napkin drawings and what they're thinking. And then by the time they launch, maybe half the room is already on board. And I had someone say like, that's all, it sounds really nice, but I'm more, you know, get get it going. And very read, screw all this time wasting, just want to go faster. And I was like, I get where you're coming from. And I like to go fast too, but I know when I go too fast in my teams, once I launch the change, the time spent afterwards is sitting in the meetings dealing with everyone's emotions Mm. because I haven't taken that time to put in the consideration and thinking about change management and anxiety. And so actually you might find that thinking this through, yes, it might be more time consuming upfront, but then they're ready to go when you go. Right. I also think people feel more productive when
1: they're busy, even if they're not <laughs> busy in the right way or on the right things. And um it reminds me of a client I worked with actually on a, a career transition engagement. And this was a senior individual who, you know, was very successful in his career and had many opportunities coming at him because he was so successful, but he really wanted to be thoughtful and take a step back and be proactive to go after what he wanted, but he needed to figure, excuse me, he needed to figure out what that was that he wanted. And to do that, he really needed to create space for reflection, not just time, but space. Mm -hmm. And that space was so uncomfortable for him, and as it is for many people. And so he just constantly filled that space with meetings, that people were asking him for, for other opportunities that maybe weren't the right thing for him. And that is part of the growth process is being
0: uncomfortable and sitting with yourself sometimes. So this is a really nice lead into uh, thinking strategically, because what I'm seeing is that exactly that. Doing the tangible work, which let's call, let's reference that as weeds, right? Being in the weeds yeah. in the details. Okay. So that's the tangible work that there's a start and stop, an end date, a project to be completed, something to be delivered. Uh, that's very productive and quote unquote productive. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm seeing a lot of senior leaders default back down into getting involved because when they remove themselves away from that, the weeds and do what they're hired to do, which is to look ahead, be strategic, uh, be a leader, it's empty space, right? There's no guidebook. It's not very tangible. It requires headspace. It requires thinking, talking, researching, mm-hmm. all things that can feel very uncomfortable because it's not in the tangible space. So then right. they get freaked out they get very vulnerable, right? Like, oh God, what is my job? Everyone, nothing failed when I walked away from the weeds. I'm, you know, I made myself redundant. And they actually lose themselves in this kind of intangible zone or quiet zone when actually this is, you've done it. You've successfully built a team that doesn't need you to be there in the weeds. Now you can actually do your job and think about, The future and think about, you know, development and skills building and all that great stuff that HBR writes about. Um, How do you help them through this? Because I'm seeing it everywhere. Yes. Yes. And this is the mindset
1: piece. This is exactly that adaptive challenge that I spoke about because this is about how we think. And uh, what often gets in our way are these limiting beliefs and assumptions that are often grounded in fear. And this is the one thing we share in common as human beings: is fear and anxiety. So we all have this, and we have. Um, there's a, a methodology called immunity to change, and a book by the same name by two Harvard professors, Bob Keegan and Lisa Leahy, that I highly recommend. And in it, they unpack our competing commitments, these underlying elements of what is really our psychological immune system. At work, and these commitments they're not noble. It's not like I'm committed to high quality work or excellent customer service, these are self protective in nature. It's I'm committed to never being found out as a fraud, I'm committed to never being outshined, I'm committed to never being wrong. Mm. And again, we all have these, whatever they are, Um, but these are the things that have us get in our own way, and it's our belief or assumption about what will happen if those things in fact happen, if we are found out to be wrong, Um, which sometimes we are wrong (laughs) and it's okay. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, It's usually that we feel like there's going to be some horrible, dire consequence of that. And those beliefs and assumptions are typically formed very early in life, usually childhood, sometimes adolescence or early adulthood. And... Perhaps with good reason way back when, but now as an adult many years later, the context is different and these beliefs and assumptions no longer serve us, but we are seeing the world through a set of lenses from long ago that no longer apply. And so this is, this is the really hard part of change, but what is great is once we can unpack what these competing commitments are and these underlying, we call them big assumptions, that hold this whole psychological immune system in place, once we're able to articulate them, that can help start to shake the system loose a little bit and give us some more freedom in how we think. But being able to debunk these assumptions by, for example, creating some safe tests or experiments to test the validity of the experiment. So not for the sake of behavior change per se, but just to test are these really true? These things that I'm holding on so tightly to. And it's things like, you know, talking to other senior leaders about, you know, tell me about a time when you did get it wrong and what happened and how were you able to handle that? And to be able to see that the world doesn't fall apart and things can be okay and you can recover from certain things. That's a big assumption that many of us have is that if we fail, we won't, able to recover from it. So I would say being able to unpack those limiting beliefs and assumptions, and it really takes some vulnerability and honesty with ourselves to be able to do that.
0: And is this something that you do one-on-one or, or is it something that's done by a leadership team? Both. Both.
1: I tend to do it one-on-one in my executive coaching engagements because I find that these adaptive challenges are present in virtually all of our engagements. Mm -hmm. It is most powerful when the entire leadership team is doing it either separately or together. But if they're doing it separately to be able to share with each other, a what they're working on Mm -hmm. and b what are those limiting beliefs and assumptions. I had, um, something that I was working on and I unpacked, you know, my own limiting beliefs and assumptions around it. And I shared it with my business partners and just sharing it with them and hearing their responses and how supportive they were and the ideas that they had helped me see like, this isn't true. I have nothing to be concerned about or worry about here. And that alone helped me start to shift my behavior
0: I find that a lot of high functioning and high performing people, and like you said, we're all human. We, we all have limiting beliefs. They show up in very different ways and they kind of feel like they need to put on this projection that they have all the answers and, um, they're, they're there because someone thought that they would have the answers. So they need to deliver on that. Um, And this concept of vulnerability, and and like I said earlier, we were chatting before, I, I work specifically with technology leaders, and the reality is, there is no answer, right? It changes all the time. So it's completely impossible to stand at the top of the mountain and go, it's this or it's that. This impacts people's ability to, you know, they don't know how to be vulnerable in a safe way, is how I would say that. So then they close up and default to being very protective and being very like, um, impermeable, you know, like I can't, I can't be broken. And then they start commanding and controlling and getting very involved. And I, I'm sure if one client heard this, they'd be like, she's talking about me. And I'm like, no, I'm talking about. (laughs) (laughs) And and those are very react, what we would call reactive
1: behaviors, the controlling, both controlling, complying, also protecting, yeah, and oftentimes those competing commitments are about upholding a desired image or avoiding a dreaded image.
0: Yeah, yeah. And
1: hence the self-protective thing that goes on
0: shadow or um, mask, I guess. So, okay. So I love the idea identifying your li- your personal limiting beliefs and what's you know what are you trying to not become true or moving away from then identifying some small and safe experiments to like basically prove that those are limiting beliefs and they're not truths. Right. And it feels like those things in order to do a, a strategy, like a business strategy, you need to have done this, or it's important to do this work first so that you have the headspace.
1: It can be important to do first or at some point I would say in the process. So when a leadership team creates a strategy, that inherently will involve let's say some type of change so we're not going to focus on this sector we're going to focus on that sector we're no longer going to uh, engage these types of clients we're going to focus on these other clients Mm -hmm. and that change can be very threatening to people and going back to that self-protective thing being able to then address based on once we know the changes How do we each individually need to change to support this? What does that mean for our own behaviors? What do we need to start doing or stop doing? Mm. And going from there. So it can be very valuable at any point in the process, but it can be even more valuable once we understand how we individually need to change to support that overall strategy. Uh, The other thing that I wanted to say to go back to that whole of the mask that you mentioned and mm. the self protective piece. You know, when we are spending time and energy doing things like posturing and making ourselves look good, not only are we not working on our development areas, but we are taking time and energy away from the business. And when we are a senior leader and we are doing that, we are then making it necessary culturally for other people to do that. And that means not only are now a lot of people not working on their development areas, Mm. but a lot of people are taking time and energy away from the business and how much that restricts leadership capacity. So this is really important stuff when you look at scaling a business. So many businesses are concerned with how are we going to grow or how are we How are we going to manage the rapid growth? This is part of how you do it is we address these deeper challenges so that we can expand not only our own leadership capacity, but our collective leadership capacity.
0: Yeah. And what that brings up for me is often I'll start an engagement and we're talking about we need to change these people or we need to change that. And it always ends up back at actually what behaviors are you reinforcing? And we really need to look at your individual leadership style, which then becomes uh, sometimes kind of uncomfortable or um, confronting for the individual and and the team. But what I find so exciting about this work is these are lifelong skills. You understand, you know, like lifting your limiting beliefs and seeing that they're not real truths, and you can overcome them. Like these are things that, you will get for the rest of your career. It not only serves you in the present and will make your team better and deliver better, but it will be there for you always. And I actually want to come back to, you know, 17 years ago when you started the business in recession. And I find it's very um, timely to be talking about this because I, you know, there's this looming recession um, upon us that a lot of people are talking about, but also there's a whole bunch of uncertainty going on in the world that then creates, I think, collective anxiety, Across the workplace. And I remember in the recession, and that was my first career job, and there was a huge layoff, right? A massive redundancy where a team of 100 was brought down to a team of 10. People who had been there, you know, 30 plus years were now looking for jobs and putting a CV together for the first time. And what I find interesting is that now that I'm here and working with senior leaders, I think if there was a layoff tomorrow, they would be back when these people I was witnessing were not knowing how to take the skills forward into the next job right and not staying relevant and it's like the business wants you and needs you to stay relevant and to stay adaptable yes. and not to stay fixed. But what I find fascinating and you've triggered this is that well we're back here again where if there was you know some horrible thing and people went through what we did seventeen years ago, there'd be a whole A lot of people not equipped to deal with that environment. And I I, am curious to get your thoughts since you were there 17 years ago with a career transition. You know, have we improved?
1: (laughs) Well, it's it's very individual, I will say. And we've done career transition throughout the 17 years, I will Mm -hmm. say also um that's still a very core core area of our business and i will also say a very strategic area of our business in mm. 2009 when the economy tanked and our leadership business fell off when budgets got cut our career transition business spiked and we had our best year ever and so that will always be part of what we do and it's interesting because we see these limiting beliefs and assumptions get in the way of people in the context of career transition all the time because people have beliefs about what's possible or not possible for themselves. And I see this a lot with working moms. One person I'm thinking of felt that, you know, she wanted this high-powered glamorous job, but she was very conflicted because she had the belief, one, that if I don't get the high-powered glamorous job, then I'm mediocre. Mm -hmm. And if I do get the high-powered glamorous job, then I'm a bad mom. So she was very much in a double bind. And I also see it in terms of other you know, behaviors that are important for the um, the career transition process. Another client I'm thinking of was incredibly indecisive and he couldn't decide if he wanted to stay in the same sector or change. He couldn't decide if he wanted to stay in his current city or move to be home with family. He couldn't decide if he wanted to propose to his girlfriend or break up. I mean, really was all over the place, had no anchor. And so what we looked at through the immunity to change process was his decisiveness or lack thereof. And for him, it rooted to, remember I talked about some of this stuff or a lot of this stuff goes back to early in our lives. This individual grew up very poor. And every year he was allowed to buy one new pair of pants for school for the whole year. And he had to choose wisely because if he chose wrong, that was it. Did not get another new pair of pants until next year. And so this became such a high stakes decision. And therefore, every decision he made was such a high stakes decision that he was paralyzed by it. Mm. And when we were unable to unpack this, it was really quite eye-opening and liberating for him because he had all of a sudden seen how much he held himself back. And this is going back to the adult development piece. This person was really growing, being able to see this and move beyond this and understand that you know i'd like to say nothing is irreversible in life other than the decision to have children or not <laughs> so <laughs> if you take the wrong job you can change it if you move to the wrong city you can move back uh etc and um so being able to challenge our own beliefs and assumptions whether it's in the context of a job search or on the job can be so important to our development
0: Yeah, how impactful that work was and is, um, but also like the client's willingness to be open to that. Yes. Right? And that doesn't always, it's not always there. Yes. And that's
1: where coaching can help because it is a safe space given the confidential nature of coaching that we don't, you know, share this information with any other people. Of course, I'm talking on a very anonymous, (laughs) generalized (laughs) basis here, but I don't share, you know, no coach uh, worth their salt will break confidentiality, and that creates the safety for a person to really open up and tell you what's going on. For a senior leader to be able to say, "I don't know what the hell I'm doing, yes. <laughs> and I'm scared yeah. to death I'm going to get it wrong, and people are never going to want to work with me again." And that's a big fear too—not only of failure, but of marginalization. That's yeah. a very primal. An isolation, fear. yeah. An isolation, exactly. Yeah. I had a client who was reluctant to set the vision for his company because he felt like if I set the vision, people will see me as hierarchical and that will separate me from everybody else.
0: Mm,
1: he yeah, separated.
0: I've noticed that a lot. I've been working more and more with uh, doing a program with um, early stage founders, and so they're not their teams are very small. And I've noticed, you know, when I talk about adding a bit of formality into one-to-ones and performance and they kind of not all of them but there's been some hesitation because it's like well but I like the you know casual coffee chats i was like well yeah we all like casual coffee chats but at the end of the day you are their boss right and Mm -hmm. in a a team of five to ten it can feel very friendly and there's a nice team vibe but you've got to scale that you've got to also keep the I mean I hate to say power dynamics in check because you are responsible for their Growth, but also their, you know, their contribution to the the business. And at the end of the day, it's a business, not not a friendship <laughs> circle. It is a business, yes, yes. And I would say a
1: lot of senior leaders, you know, it's important that they. I, I would say not so much remember the power dynamic, uh, or keep the power dynamic, but they remember their responsibility, their fiduciary responsibility to achieve their organization's goals, mm. uh, and. I think a lot of leaders do forget about that power dynamic, actually, which can affect their approachability. Or they might be just riffing off some ideas, and people all of a sudden take it as directives, and I have to go yes. do this. When they're like, "Oh, I was just brainstorming." Oh,
0: I've seen that a lot. Yeah, to keep that. Yeah, in and life. being mindful of like you know when you're in these roles, especially if you're promoted within, you're message and what you say has way more weight than when you're just part of the team. And I think it Absolutely. takes people a while to wrap their heads around that. And yeah, brainstorming can be a very dangerous game. Yes, <laughs> You don't know if your team and you don't know the dynamic, right? Because I, yeah, sometimes teams will go, oh, okay, I'll go execute right away. And then you're like, no, no, I was just, I was ripping. Yep. Um, Okay, well, this has been really fantastic, Rebecca, and, and I want to thank you for your time, your insight. Um, as with everyone, I would love for your uh, recommendations to the audience on what resources they can go look for if they wanted to dig more into this.
1: Sure. Well, it was a pleasure talking with you. Uh, one, I would highly recommend the book Immunity to Change by Robert Keegan and Lisa Leahy. Uh, People can also go to our website at nextsteppartners.com slash list and download our list of
0: our favorite leadership development resources. Nice. I'll make sure that that's linked in the podcast notes. All the best of luck with your endeavors and your work in leadership. Thank you. To you as well.